0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: Social media is being used these days as an avenue for misleading political messages which aren't easy to counter. But would democracy and journalism be better served by a social media model that doesn't depend on either advertising or harvesting your precious data to survive and prosper? That sounds nice, but highly unlikely to make a buck. But as Jeremy Rose now reports, a startup in the US called Substack, which includes a Kiwi journalist among its founders... Recently raised more than 15 million US dollars in venture capital on just that premise. You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunks myths and misinformation taught in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today we have a very special guest. Her name is Katarina Piovich and She is running to be the president of Croatia from the Workers' Party.
2: I came across the Historically podcast a few weeks back when I was looking for information about candidates in the upcoming Croatian elections, as you do, and that interview was the only Google hit in English for Katarina Piovic. But what really caught my attention was this.
0: Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter and Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters and that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised.
2: That unmistakable Kiwi accent had me searching the vaguely familiar name Hamish McKenzie. I soon realised I'd heard him interviewed by Kim Hill last year about the book Insane Mode, how Elon Musk's Tesla sparked an electric revolution to end the age of oil. So what is Substack? Well, the New York Times headlined its story, the new social network that isn't new at all. And journalist Mike Isaac began the story like this.
1: My favourite new social network doesn't incessantly spam me with notifications. When I post, I'm not bombarded with mentions from bots and trolls, and after I use it, I don't worry about ads following me around the web. That's because my new social network is an email newsletter. Every week or so, I blast it out to a few thousand people who've signed up to read my musings. Some of them email back, occasionally leading to a thoughtful conversation. It's still early in the experiment, but I think I love it. I
2: Skyped Hamish McKenzie at home in San Francisco recently and began by asking him to give the elevator pitch that convinced investors to fork out nearly 24 million New Zealand dollars in venture capital.
0: Substack is a subscription publishing platform. And basically we just make it simple for a writer to start a paid newsletter. We say newsletter because that's simple, but really it's kind of like a personal media empire where a writer can have like a blog that's attached to a mailing list. And they could also, if they want, distribute podcasts through their Substack and host discussion threads. And that's kind of the start of it, uh, but there'll be a lot more later. And the whole thing is monetized for writers with subscriptions instead of advertising or any other model and we think that subscriptions is a a better way forward for the media.
2: I mean, when it's been written up, and it's been written up all over the place, New York Times, Forbes, Vanity Fair, they all describe it as an email service, like it's the return of email. Is that simply because you're alerted to the content by email? It's not
0: only that you're alerted to the content by email. You can actually read all the content in your email. We think that email is like the best distribution method for content. Uh, It's nice and quiet. It's away from social media. It's a place where you, as the reader, can have your entire focus directed at that content. And it's kind of completionist in a way that writers can be sure that all their work will get in front of the people who want to see it rather than being left up to the kind of the winds and whims of social media like Twitter or Facebook, where you don't know if people who follow you are going to see everything you publish.
2: You recently launched a venture capital fundraising project. I think you raised 15.3 million US dollars. What are people investing in?
0: Yeah, we raised 15.3 million dollars from Andreessen Horowitz, which is a great venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, one of the best. And that was on top of 2.2 million dollars that we raised coming out of Way Combinator, which is an accelerator, last year. And people are investing in. The potential for the Substack model and the Substack ecosystem, the network of writers who are monetizing through subscriptions, to become something absolutely giant—that's what investors are interested in. That there's just a small chance of that happening, at least. Um, and it's our job to work as hard as possible to make that a possibility. So they see they see a, a big opportunity here for media to kind of the media business model to kind of be reinvented.
2: One of the success stories, which is often quoted, is Bill Bishop's Sinocism, a newsletter on China. And I think he produced that well before he became a Substack user. What did you do for him? Why has it been so successful?
0: We just let him get paid by the readers who wanted to pay him. That was basically it. Bill was already uh, publishing a great newsletter. He'd been doing it for five years He had built up a mailing list of about 35,000 people, and many of those people were absolutely devoted to this newsletter because it helped them do their jobs better. He translated the important news of the day about China for an English-speaking audience, essentially. And uh, over the years, he'd run a couple of donation drives that hadn't really amounted to much. He wasn't truly making an income from his newsletter. And we just said, come be our first customer on Substack. Um, We'll make it simple for you to do this paid subscription play And then uh, he came, agreed, and on his first day with paid subscriptions, he got to six figures of revenue. And the essential thing that was key to his success there was that there was this pent-up demand of people who wanted to support him but really didn't have a good ongoing way to do that before paid subscriptions were introduced.
2: And I imagine quite a lot of people with a lot at stake who are interested in China, so in in a very big country, so having those sorts of numbers doesn't seem surprising if you're producing a really good newsletter, very good content. But you've also recently made a push for kind of hyper-local news as a way of dealing with the death of local coverage. How does that work? You know, in a small community, a reporter covering local bodies and things, can they also make a living out of it?
0: Yes, they can. uh, We're... We've proven that this model can work for independent writers. So an individual who's writing about an area that they have authority in and covering it deeply and from an informed position, they will, if they're good, attract an audience that will be increasingly devoted to them as long as they keep doing good work. And some portion of that audience will be willing to pay to support that good work. So we've we've seen that it can work in things like writing about China or writing about cryptocurrency or bankruptcy, or even like comedy, Victorian uh, literature riffs, as Daniel Orberg does, for instance. But we also believe strongly that it can work for local news. We're just starting to see the green shoots of this with publications that are covering like business news in Charlotte, North Carolina, for example, or City Hall in Toronto, where there doesn't need to be a massive infrastructure that supports reporters in a locale But one person can pick a beat and dedicate themselves to that beat, build an audience, and then that audience over time, if they find it valuable, some of them will pay. And the numbers don't have to be huge to support one person. If you have a few hundred subscribers, for instance, paying $5 a month, $50 a year, that can pretty quickly add up to meaningful revenue. And if you have thousands of people paying that amount of money, then you're actually, you've got a good full-time living. You don't have to reach millions like you do in this uh, current BuzzFeed-dominated uh, traffic era of the internet, but a good, dedicated, small audience can be enough to make a meaningful living.
2: So you mentioned the Charlotte Ledger business newsletter there, and I had a look at that, and the story was about a new school being opened. so it really is pretty hyper-local kind of news. Is the author of that blog making a living?
0: At the moment, that author is investing in his local news business. He hasn't actually turned on the paid subscriptions yet, so he's putting himself in the position to do that. But like any kind of media business, it does require some investment period. It's not just going to turn on money by magic. So you do have to be good. You do have to put a lot of energy into it, and you do have to put some um, upfront investment in it, even if that's just your time.
2: You recently offered, you know, when you – did a push for people to try and start up these local news reporting sites. You said that you would spend half an hour with them mentoring them. Did many people take you up on that? Yeah,
0: a bunch of people taking me up on that and a bunch of people from organizations that are also concerned about local news and want to help some lawyers, some local news nonprofits. So I'm ha- having a lot of productive conversations around that around that front. And that's kind of based on the realisation that you can't just be a writer and, like, write words and hope that that's enough and, you know, use the Substack publishing tool and that's enough. For some people it can be, but there are going to be others who are doing more hardcore reporting who need kind of access to legal resources and editorial support and uh, health insurance is is a big thing in the United States because you don't get nationalised healthcare. And uh, that means that, a kind of a support structure needs to be established around these writers to help them in the absence of newsrooms or other organisations that might have existed in the past.
2: And you were proposing to do that, to have legal and health services available? We definitely want to play
0: a role in that. I don't know what form it's ultimately going to take, but Substack will be involved in trying to figure out what the solutions are. And, you know, that could range from anything like partnering with organizations that can provide easy access to healthcare, to perhaps setting up a legal entity or partnering with a legal entity that can provide a discount or free legal advice, that sort of thing. So we're in conversations with people to see what we can do on that front.
2: And did any New Zealanders get in touch about that hyperlocal news idea?
0: No, none did actually. <laughs> and I hope they do. I think there's plenty of potential in New Zealand. And uh yeah, there's nothing there's nothing to prevent New Zealanders using Substack and making money from it. Uh we serve that market pretty nicely,
2: I think. How does it differ from Patreon?
0: Patreon is
2: um a great thing.
0: Actually, I don't think Substack would quite be able to succeed to succeed to the extent it has if Patreon hadn't existed. They kind of paved the way and showed that people will be willing to support the the artists and the creators they love. Patreon is more broad based. They are they are like focused on Anything to do with creating stuff that can be supported by fan bases, so that can be uh, music, podcasting, graphic art, video, whatever. Substack is very, very focused on writers. And another key difference is that uh, Patreon is kind of something that you plug into an existing system. So if you ever have, if you already have a website, or if you're doing most of your stuff on YouTube, you can tell people to to go over to Patreon to support you there. Whereas Substack's more of a unified publishing system, so you can. Publish through Substack. You can accept payments through Substack and manage all your subscriptions and kind of manage everything to do with your publishing enterprise with the one tool. Our kind, our pitch to people is: we take care of everything except the hard part, which is the writing
2: itself. They've um, come in for some criticism from the likes of Sam Harris for their decision to bar some some writers. Uh, Lauren Southern was one of them, the Canadian provocateur. Do you see that being an issue you're going to have to face? Are there going to be people that you simply don't want on the platform?
0: Yeah, we are very, very, very likely to face that as we as we scale and become more widely known and people see the opportunity on Substack. Um, we haven't had to deal with that too much yet. We're still just two years into this, uh, but it's, it's bound to come and there are going to be some tough questions to answer at that time.
2: So give us some figures. How, how many people... Are using it how many paid subscribers? There's thousands
0: of newsletters, thousands of publications, uh, and across the network there are more than 50,000 paying subscribers to these writers. So uh, yeah, those are the top-line figures, and we're pretty happy with the progress so far.
2: And have you got one?
0: <laughs> I have got one, uh, but I, I don't have much time to do anything with it. I'm spending most of my life either focusing on the company or focusing on my uh, two-year-old, but yes, I I do have one in kind of a partial state.
2: Because that's your background, isn't it? You were a freelance journalist. You wrote a book on Elon Musk, on the Tesla car.
0: That's right. Yeah, I've been a journalist of kind of all types in the print realm, worked for magazines, worked for newspapers, worked for websites, and I've been a freelancer. And yeah, I wrote a book that came out last year in November about Tesla and the electric car revolution.
2: You started, I think, at um, Critic, the student magazine.
0: Yes, I was the uh, well, as a volunteer writer, and then the news editor, and then ultimately the editor at Critic. And very had a great time there at Taga University.
2: How long ago was that? That was um, what was I think um,
0: 2004 was my year when I was the editor.
2: Finally, I suppose. Can you nominate just two or three substack news leaders that you think are particularly good?
0: A really fun one worth checking out is Ask Molly. It's askmolly.substack.com. That's written by a woman named Heather Haberleski. She's a great essayist and a humor writer, and she also writes an advice column for a New York magazine called Ask Polly, which is about helping people deal with difficult problems and being in touch with their feelings, et cetera. She started Ask Molly as Polly's evil alter ego, and so she dishes, dishes out this kind of acerbic advice on how to deal with marriage and how to get by with your lame uh, boyfriends and deal with the exes, and that sort of stuff. I think it's hilarious. It's brilliant writing. Another one that's really interesting, if you're interested in U.S. politics, which everyone kind of has to be at the moment, is Popular Information. It's popular dot info, and that is by a guy named Jud Legum, who was formerly the editor-in-chief of Think Progress, and he writes uh, four times a week. Newsletter where he does research-driven analysis and sometimes gets scoops about important political news in the US. He's very dedicated and he's doing very well, and I think it's worth checking him out.
2: When I came across this, and I came across your voice in the midst of a podcast <laughs> I was listening to, and when yeah. I got in touch, you knew instantly which blog I was talking about. Do you have a kind of personal relationship with a large number of these newsletter writers?
0: Yeah, my role, there are three of us in the company. There are three co-founders and the other two are developers and one of them is the CEO, so he's also a a business-focused guy. And my job in the company is to understand the world of writers, go out and attract as many writers as I can to Substack and then help them succeed on the platform. So, yes, I have a pretty close relationship with many, many, many writers now who, who are using Substack and all of the top people who are making the most money I know All of the people who are doing the top three newsletters I know, and it's it's a wonderful experience because I get to spend all this time with high-quality writers and develop these uh, quite trusted relationships with them, which is really essential to the success of Substack because we need writers to trust us so uh, that we can succeed.
1: That was Kiwi journalist and co-founder of the online publishing platform Substack, Hamish McKenzie, speaking there to Jeremy Rose. And you can hear more about the platform and more from Hamish in the online version of the story on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app. And there are a few local journalists here already taking advantage of this email-based social media platform. Political commentator, lawyer, and blogger Morgan Godfrey, for example, has around 130 paying subscribers for his Substack, Maui Street. Journalist David Cohen's Middle Feast is dedicated to Middle East cuisine, and tech writer Richard McManus posts to paying subscribers on Substack three times a week.